0: Because the whole question of incarceration, if it's immigration detention or prisons or jails, is that people who are incarcerated are not understood as people. And they're not understood as people with agency or with kind of rationality or decision-making power. They're understood as criminals who are kind of subhumans.
1: Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond.
2: Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on Kite Line, we hope to share these words across the prison walls.
1: Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news.
3: All remaining charges have been dropped in the J-20 mass arrest case, which stemmed from an indiscriminate police roundup of almost 200 demonstrators at Trump's inauguration. The mass arrest failed to contain clashes which escalated sharply after the roundup and which spread to six square blocks of downtown D.C. as thousands of people battled the police and lit barricades on fire in order to defend themselves. Likewise, even the seriousness of the felony charges against nearly 200 people failed to chill protest during the first 18 months of Trump's presidency. Many see the collapse of the prosecution's case as further cause to demonstrate together confidently in the streets.
2: More than 600,000 people make the transition from prison to the community every year. Two researchers at the Prison Policy Initiative used a nationally representative data set to estimate, for the first time, the amount of unemployment among the 5 million formerly incarcerated people in the U.S. Their analysis shows that 27% of formerly incarcerated people are unemployed. That figure is higher than the total U.S. unemployment rate during any period in history, even the Great Depression. The unemployment rate among formerly incarcerated people is almost five times higher than the rate among the U.S. population in general. African Americans and Latinx people, particularly women, are especially hard hit. Their status as formerly incarcerated decreases their chances of employment even more. As the report notes, quote, this perpetual labor market punishment creates a counterproductive system of release and poverty, hurting everyone involved, employers, the taxpayers, and certainly formerly incarcerated people looking to break the cycle, unquote. Red Fawn Fallis, an indigenous water defender whose case we covered last year in Kite Line was just sentenced to 57 months in prison. She was arrested while demonstrating against the Dakota Access Pipeline at Standing Rock and subjected to harsh charges that many have considered a frame-up. Information on how to support her can be found at waterprotectorlegal.org.
3: A prisoner at the Crossroads Prison in Missouri described a riot and sit-in which occurred on July 4th as prisoners protested new rules banning them from talking and congregating in groups. These are his words. We are currently on lockdown because last night, the 4th of July, at 9, when the yard closed, people staged a sit-in and refused to go inside the house. After about an hour, they returned to their housing units, but then all the COs left and had us locked inside. And because this open bay, it got crazy. In one of the housing units, they did a lot of damage, like knocking down walls, destroying desks, and breaking windows. We were locked inside the housing unit all the way till about 8am when they came in with an emergency riot team and began taking each house out one by one, cuffing everybody. It was crazy, and it's no telling how long we'll be on lockdown, but it was good to see black, brown, and whites come together inside.
1: Last week. Aaron Azura guided us through the history of colonialism in Australia, including racist measures to control non-white immigration, and later, in the 1980s, the implementation of mandatory detention for refugees. He focused on his experiences in an occupation outside the remote Woomera Detention Center, and the way that supporters on the outside grew in numbers, intensifying pressure on the authorities. Now, he walks us through the 2002 mass breakout of refugees there, all the way through the following standoff and its aftermath. As we reflect on the inspiring actions at Woomera, we're also tracking the occupations underway across the U.S. right now. Occupy ICE in Portland has been subjected to a brutal eviction, during which police shot occupiers with pepper balls at close range. Likewise, there was a mass arrest in San Francisco following more than a week of occupation outside the ICE regional headquarters, which halted all deportations in Northern California. Occupations continue in Los Angeles, Tacoma, and Louisville, as well as many other cities. Here's Arin finishing the story of the Woomera breakout.
0: It's kind of emotional to retell because this is a a moment when, you know, when you're organi when you're involved in organizing a protest and you feel strongly about something and you know that, you know, people are are really in trouble and you care about them, um, you want to be able to talk to them. But I think for a lot of people this was the first time that they'd ever been able to come face to face with a detainee or any detainees. I think that for some of the people who attended, they were excited about being there, but they weren't that interested in following the lead of the detainees. But for a lot of us, the idea was to work with detainees to facilitate them to protest. So people had been on the phone um, with detainees inside, and some of the detainees told us that they were going to do an action at a particular time. Um, I think it was... 5 or 6 p.m. on Easter Friday, and it's funny that even though the whole protest was totally secular, the idea of it being at Easter and happening, it, it kind of gave the whole event some kind of weird symbolism, such that I'm still talking about Easter Friday, which seems bizarre. So they told us that they were doing a protest, and a protest inside would look like people breaking out of the various different kinds of compounds that they were placed in, and going out into the main part of the detention center that was closer to the outside. And it was surrounded by really high fences, really very structurally sound metal fences with a lot of razor wire at the top. There was a kind of inner perimeter fence and then an outer, a couple of other outer perimeter fences. So people went to meet. And at first, I think that a lot of people thought that we weren't going to be able to get more than maybe a kilometer or 500 meters close to the the detention center. But as people started to come and people started to kind of walk over, people reached the first outer perimeter fence and started shaking it. And I think it was over three or four meters high, but it basically came down within 10 minutes. And this is kind of a signal to the fact that this was so in such a remote environment that I think the, the, the state hadn't actually realized that people would be able to kind of do this. They hadn't imagined what could happen if 2,000 people descended and started pulling down the fence. So we got to this, this first fence, pulled it down, and then people started running towards the kind of inner fence. There was another perimeter fence that we thought we were gonna have to pull down as well, but it turned out to have a huge gap in it, like a gate. And then eventually we we're like we were right on the inner perimeter fence and the protesters were, I guess, like two meters away, three meters away, on the other side of another high fence. And this is you know, this is like a jail. It's huge metal bars. Obviously some of them should organize metal bars to try to start bringing that fence down and people from within the protesters had brought wire cutters and so a lot of people started trying to cut the wires or or lever open some of the bars on the fence we were expecting a huge police presence but there weren't enough people and it turned out that something in the protesters favor was that there was a kind of, I guess, a kind of debate happening between the state police who had jurisdiction over the outside of the the center and the Australian Federal Police who had jurisdiction over the inside of the center. Um, And at the time, in South Australia, the state, uh, it was a labor government, and they were critical of mandatory detention policies So they had basically said, well, yes, you know, we'll send in police, but we can't say how many we're sending. We're not quite sure, you know, uh, uh, the Australian Federal Police have to kind of be responsible for whatever happens at this protest. So that really worked because the the police presence for for a while anyway until people started breaking out was pretty minimal. People had brought flowers to give them. There were a lot of kind of big visual things like banners, ribbons to pass through the the fence. There were sound actions, so there was a lot of music. There were organized people with sound systems on trucks who came. And for a while, I guess for maybe about 15 minutes, it's hard to remember exactly what the time was. Maybe it was even an hour. A lot of people were just talking, shouting back and forth. And the detainees who were kind of on this, on the other side of this perimeter fence, started crossing that fence and coming, like, really close to us. And so there were only, there were just, like, I guess maybe, like, six inches of bars between us. And then as the people who were trying to actually bring the fence down or open gaps in it started to be successful, there was a huge crowd, there was a lot of excitement, there were a lot of people who were crying on both sides. There a couple of films that you can watch on YouTube if you want to find out more, but it was just this, this intense moment of joy and kind of unexpected connection and real grief for these people who are locked up, who we just wanted to be free. Eventually, the people on the inside and the people on the outside levered one bar off, and it was enough to allow people to jump through, and they started just jumping out. It was about, I think, 48 people who escaped. And at that point, the cops came. A whole posse of cops from either side started going, uh, like coming in and trying to tackle detainees who had escaped, tackle protesters who were helping them. There were a lot of scuffles. Australian police at the time weren't armed with guns, and nobody expected them to use them. So there was a lot of attempts at de-arresting happening so people who were actually tackling police officers and trying to free detainees or free protesters who were being arrested. The other thing that was weird was that the mainstream media were there and they were trying to film and to protect people's identity, lots of us were trying to block the cameras of mainstream media. Um, we were trying to block people who were filming for indie media or who were independently there, which in retrospect is kind of bizarre, but we definitely were trying to block the major news networks from filming what was happening. And then the urgent thing that became clear was that we had to get uh, detainees who had escaped back to camp where there were a huge number of tents, where there was cover, where we could hide them. So people started basically running with detainees back to camp and that night, that happened around 5 or 6 p.m., and then that night, uh, throughout the night, the police were raiding various tents. There were people who were surrounding detainees, the There were protesters who were dressing up as detainees and trying to kind of get arrested themselves. And then there were attempts also to... Because by this time, the police had surrounded the camp there were attempts to start spiriting detainees out in cars. In retrospect, a lot of it was, I mean, one of the things that I remember most clearly is that about three Afghani detainees were in our camp, in in the kind of camp that I was in, and we made them tea and gave them food. And, And we sat down and talked. The really important thing was just to connect and to ask them what has happened to them, what their history was, I was talking to a detainee who was from Iran, who had been a political prisoner in Iran, who who decided to leave because he thought that he would be disappeared, basically. In Australia, his asylum claim was denied, and he'd been in, in detention for five years without any kind of answer about if he could even go back to Iran. So that was a really huge part of it, was in this moment of freedom, and it was... Temporary for a lot of the people of the 48 detainees who broke out. 36 were arrested again, and they ended up having criminal trials and being given prison terms. And it seems like that wouldn't be a desirable thing, but for a lot of the detainees, actually being in a prison was preferable to being in an detention center. So some of them ended up serving prison terms in Australian prisons. Where they actually had more rights or more kind of capacity to organize or just be people than what they had had in detention centers. I want to talk about the aftermath of the breakout now. I think that while some people who had attended really intended for people to escape and thought of the protest itself as a way to make that happen, the majority of people present had thought of it as a symbolic protest and had thought of it as as the extent of it as being just making our presence felt at the detention center, maybe from a distance, but just being there. And a lot of people, even those of us who had been organizing it um, from the beginning, hadn't really given a lot of thought to what would happen in the event of a breakout. So I think that in general, the protest camp itself was really disorganized. Um, And that's something that people learned from right away and did differently the next time. But also, because it was a spokes council model where everybody got to talk, but there wasn't a consensus, there were a lot of groups who were more on the liberal end of things that were worried that having detainees escape would make us look bad and would result in really negative media coverage. So one um, socialist group in particular at the next day's big spokes council meeting, they said that they thought, that we should give back the detainees to the police. Uh, no one was actually willing to do that. Uh, so they were shouted down pretty uh, fast. But it was also decided because there were still detainees in camp, because the situation was really unstable, we didn't know what the police would do, was that the actions that we would take wouldn't be focused on trying to make another breakout happen, but that we would basically have a day where things were a little bit kind of more laid back. And also on that day after the breakout happened, there was a lot of liaison with Indigenous owners um, who had just arrived who were representing the Indigenous nation that kind of has jurisdiction over Womera itself. And there was one particular indigenous activist who arrived. We had a really great meeting about immigration and indigenous sovereignty, but she was really worried, especially about detainees who had decided to hike into the desert because she felt as a kind of indigenous representative of the land. And it's really, you know, it's really remote. It's pretty hard for anyone to survive without water, without food. Um, if you're hiking in the desert, she was worried for their safety and felt accountable for what might happen to them if they got lost. So she was also urging us that we should maybe think about giving detainees to the police. And there was a really difficult conversation where basically, you know, a lot of people at the protests who were listening to this were saying, well, yes, we recognize Indigenous sovereignty, but there's a a way in which we also need to listen to the detainees who have been locked up and what do they want to do And we need to kind of follow their lead. So this was, you know, this is a moment of tension, I think, between immigration activism and Indigenous activism that really showed up the kind of tensions and contradictions between these two, and this is a kind of tension that never really got resolved. The detainees didn't end up wanting to be handed back to the police, And the majority, Um, and those who are still in camp, I think eventually 12 managed to escape, mostly in cars. The people who ended up uh, hiking through the desert, um, because there was very little cover in the desert, also ended up being picked up by police uh, because the police had helicopters. The rest of the weekend was basically trying to kind of keep the camp happening and then also do jail solidarity with the DDDs who'd been arrested again and with a number of protesters who were arrested. So there were about 30 people who were arrested during the breakout and then other people who were arrested over the course of the weekend. And the camp basically ended up winding up when people had to return to Adelaide, which is the the nearest major city uh, to do jail solidarity and attend the court here Initial court hearings of people who had been uh, detainees had been had broken out, and protesters who were being charged. Um, so after that, um, yeah, there was maybe a week or so where people were doing jail solidarity, and then in the main, people were a lot of the protesters were released without charge, um, but all of the detainees were remanded. And then it also ended up being a kind of a lot of arguments with the human rights groups and lawyers who had been overseeing uh, people's asylum claims, um, arguing that um, they had basically been misled by protesters, by kind of, you know, provocateur anarchists, and using that strategically to argue that the detainees didn't know what they were doing. And that also kind of sheds light on a really major contradiction or tension within immigration activism in Australia, and I also noticed happening in the U.S., which is how to deal with the agency of immigration detainees and the question of whether they're understood as having political agency or having or being political, or whether they're understood as complete victims who aren't able to decide for themselves. Um, what they want or to be, to kind of decide on political strategy. And that's, I think it's a tension that happens in a lot of organizing where people are incarcerated because you can't necessarily talk to them and they don't have a kind of the power to like speak publicly necessarily. And that for me makes it all the more important to honor and talk to detainees or people who are incarcerated and, treat them as political agents and follow the kind of political strategies that they actually want to follow. Sometimes it's not what you think you would want to do, but it's really important because the whole question of incarceration, if it's immigration detention or prisons or jails, is that people who are incarcerated are not understood as people and they're not understood as people with agency or with kind of rationality or decision making power. They're understood as criminals who are kind of subhuman. So in that respect, at least the people that I was organizing with or the kind of affinity groups that I was organizing with within the larger coalition really pushed back on these legal strategies who were saying, oh, they didn't know what they were doing. They were misled. Anarchist activists convinced them that they should try to escape. Um, They didn't and and in a way, part of it also was speaking back to the this racializing discourse around how detainees, I mean, detainees, all the detainees are people of color and a lot of them are Muslim, right? So there's this discourse that was happening in Australia at the time and still is of detainees being barbaric somehow. And inhuman in the sense that they were willing to do terrible things to themselves to make a political point, like lip sewing, which was understood as a kind of barbarism or as a kind of a form of terrorism. And one of the ways that, you know, following detainees' lead was to really undercut that. And I think of it there's a danger in investing in a kind of humanist narrative where you're saying no these people are human but it seemed really important to me and it still does that people who are incarcerated and people of color who are incarcerated because all of the kind of cultural logics that put them there are about their racialization not human or not human enough or kind of criminal or barbaric that you cut through those narratives and say okay this is you guys are, are the political agents here You guys are leading. What do you want? What do you need? How can we be in solidarity with you? So, that was Wimmera 2002. There's some things to say about what happened after that. In the short term, within six months, Wimmera Detention Center itself was closed And the Australian government opened a new detention center in South Australia, which was slightly less remote, but that had much, much better technologies of enclosure. So uh, that was Baxter Detention Center. It had much improved fortifications, including a massive electric fence. And at that point, people started to realize that breaking people out, like we'd done would not necessarily be possible. Again, for a very brief period, detention policy or asylum seeker policy in Australia improved under a Labour government that had campaigned on a more humanitarian policy. A lot of people were put on temporary visas, which meant that they were released from detention, It was understood as temporary, but those ended up being extended um, for a long time. But in the long term, I guess racist immigration politics have always been a kind of wedge in Australian politics. And the wedge kept on being inserted. A lot of that was influenced from the far right on panic about, asylum seekers and refugees and immigrants taking people's jobs, about the kind of cue-jumper rhetoric again, the government kind of eased up on the people who were actually in detention but began a policy of deterrence that was focused on having a much more militarized border patrol that basically tried to prevent boats from landing at all. At the same time as that, they came up with something called the Pacific Solution, which was that detention camps were moved from mainland Australia to very small islands in the Pacific, where, and Australia is, I guess it's kind of similar to the US and. Latin America, in that there's a lot of Australian resources and aid going to various, very small Pacific countries. The Australian government was able to leverage that to to get islands to agree to have camps be there. So there's a camp now that's been there for a very long time on Nauru, a very tiny island. There are camps in Papua New Guinea, and the idea was to basically move detention centers offshore so that they would be even more inaccessible and so that there would be even less oversight and currently to get to even get to Nauru, you have to apply for a visa which has to be approved by the federal government. they don't even approve journalist visas there are humanitarian visas. And detainees in those camps have continued to protest. And at the moment, the situation is is actually worse than it's ever been, I think. Because there's no clear... Basically, the current Australian government has said that no detainees will be resettled in Australia. So they're even trying to negotiate resettlement agreements with the U.S., which is why in January, people might have seen that Donald Trump had a very negative phone conversation with the Australian Prime Minister. And I'm pretty sure that it was negative and that Trump hung up the phone because the Prime Minister had negotiated this resettlement policy with President Obama to resettle these detainees who'd been in indefinite detention on, on Nauru to the US. And obviously Trump has not going to do that because he's clamping down on immigration in the U.S. And the the deterrence policy keeps on going, but because war has continued in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Iran, Syria, um, there's a more massive refugee crisis than there was 10 years ago. Boats continue to, to try to land on Australian shores and mostly they've picked up at sea and people are shipped off to um, camps in, in the Pacific.
1: This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box. KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.